You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Noelle Herhusky-Schneider. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, December 29th, 2021. Over the next two weeks, we will take a look back at the stories we covered in the year 2021. In today's episode, we will look back at one story we covered in the last year related to the COVID-19 pandemic. You will hear correspondent Aaron Comforty interview journalist Jonah Furman about COVID-19 outbreaks at an Indiana vaccine facility. All that and more in COVID-19 2021 in review. On April 12, 2021, WFHB correspondent Aaron Comforti spoke with journalist Jonah Furman, who published a piece in The Intercept about COVID-19 outbreaks at a Bloomington vaccine factory. Aaron Comforti filed that report. Jonah Furman was the national labor organizer for Bernie Sanders' 2020 campaign. He's written for Labor Notes, Jacobin, and he writes a weekly update on organized labor in the U.S. on his substack, Who Gets the Bird? Furman authored a piece that was jointly published by The Intercept and Labor Notes last week on how unenforced COVID safety protocols at the Catalan vaccine manufacturing facility in Bloomington, Indiana, led to worker COVID-19 outbreaks and thousands of dollars in lost wages. The article is called Catching COVID-19 at a COVID-19 Vaccine Production Facility. Jonah Furman, thanks for joining us on WFHB News. Thanks. Glad to be here. For many of our listeners who live in Bloomington, the Catalan plant featured in your article is familiar. It's the second largest employer in the county. Now, the first worker you mention in the article is Chris Shanefelt. He started working with Ermco, an electrical systems company that was contracted to work on building Catalan's new vaccine production addition to its facility. What did he tell you about the COVID-19 safety protocols at the plant and how the protocols were enforced? Yeah, Chris uh, was working at the Catalan build since, I think, October. And the first thing he noticed was basically that there was a rear door entry and a front door entry. So most of the workers were going through a front door entry. The front door entry had basic things like temperature checks and you had to fill out a questionnaire. And if you were basically cleared for the day, you get a wristband saying, I'm good to be on site. His first day, they sent him to the front door. He went through the checks. Uh, He felt they were a little lax compared to other jobs, but okay. Um, And then The day after that, and for the rest of his time on the job, he was going through this rear door entry. The rear door was what they called a construction door, meaning it's just like, you know, a simple door, no checks, no temperature uh, monitoring, no wristbanding, no questionnaires, no safety procedures that you would see in any other, you know, job site with COVID protocols. So that was for him the big red flag. 
Other things on the job were things like there was no possibility of social distancing. So they had to work in cramped spaces where you could literally reach your arms out and touch another worker. The ceiling was, you know, four feet high. Um, and there was no real mask enforcement. Other things I heard about the job were the cafeteria had no dividers, would have up to 60 workers in there at the same time, sitting four to a table. You know, it's just clearly not enforcing uh, the CDC guidelines for uh, any indoor sort of gathering space. I mean, you write that workers would take off their masks. I understand. I imagine it was hot in some of those cramped locations. But basically, Catalan had this nice language to tell the workers, hey, these protocols are in place. It's going to be safe. We're doing everything we can. We're a vaccine production facility. We take it seriously. I mean, were, were those words totally hollow? It's a good question. You know, Shanafelt took the job partly because he felt like he would be contributing to the fight against the pandemic. And it's not totally hollow. And it's it's true that, you know, Companies can't control everything that happens on a job site. There were postings, say, in the cafeteria saying limiting distance, things like that. Um, but there was no enforcement and there was clearly, you know, these holes in it, such as this backdoor entry. Um, so I think it's, you know, partly on Catalant, partly on contractor Ermco, who's the direct employer in this situation. Um and if you look at what's in writing, you know, they have written rules about the COVID protocols, some of which were, you know, just not enough in themselves. But for the most part, it was just a matter of enforcement, right? So if you go to work and people aren't being checked for infection and you're in close quarters with them and there's no enforcement of masks, of course the virus is going to spread. And the question is, you know, whose responsibility is it to contain that kind of an outbreak. I think this story was interesting because it's kind of common sense to people that your employer has some level of responsibility for keeping the job safe during a pandemic. And the past year has been all about trying to figure out what does that responsibility consist of for different employers. Uh, the irony here is that these are, you know, the most essential of essential workers who are building the facility that's going to end the pandemic. And they're not being treated with the basic safety, uh, you know, safety measures and respect that would keep them safe. And just so we understand the scope of the outbreaks, what are we talking about here? Yeah, it's hard to say, you know, different people have said to me, different workers on this job said at different times, there was, you know, dozens of people out at a time or just a few. Chris's story was about specifically the automation crew, which was between 10 and 20 workers, it would fluctuate, who were working on one specific part of the job, basically building the sensors that would automate the, the production line for the vaccines. So it's hard because there's not records of, you know, exactly how many people. I mean, this is part of the problem. Ermco and Catalant weren't doing the contact tracing that should be mandatory in facilities like these, where you would know exactly who got it, when did they get it. Um, and there was also people who, you know, I, I spoke to one worker who was a traveling electrician from Atlanta, Brian Sweet, who was instructed to get tested because there had been some fear that he was exposed. But Ermco and Catalan, nobody would pay for the test or pay for the quarantine. And he didn't have health insurance because 
because of how it works for construction workers, if you don't work enough hours, which in a pandemic, a lot of people don't, you don't have your insurance, right? Your insurance is based on have you worked enough this year to, to have health insurance. So not everyone was getting tested if they had exposures. Uh, people were being mandatory quarantine, even if they didn't think they had it. It was really sloppy. Um, all I can say is that definitely people got the virus on the job and definitely fewer people would have gotten it if they uh, had had the safety measures in place. Workers had to pay for their own COVID tests uh, once they were told they had come into close contact with someone who had tested positive. What kinds of other financial burdens did these workers face? Yeah. So, I mean, what you have to understand is that there's this law that was passed last year uh, at the beginning of the pandemic called the Families First Coronavirus Relief Act. And essentially it says, if people are forced to quarantine because of exposure, we want them to get sick leave, paid sick leave, right? So you don't want to incentivize people to keep coming to work if they think they were exposed. You want to make it so that they can afford to stay home. There's a carve out in that law that says, if an employer has over 500 employees, they're not eligible. They don't have to pay anything. So part of the fuzziness here was Ermco is a big electrical contractor and their employment numbers fluctuate. So basically the line was they have more than 500 employees. They don't need to pay these folks to quarantine. What this meant was you have traveling electricians, you know, like Brian Sweet, who came from Georgia, is renting his own motel room, paying his own way to get to the job. Meanwhile, he's forced to quarantine for two weeks uh, out of, you know, maybe a three month uh, run on this job, losing thousands, I mean, losing thousands just on the motel, but also lost wages that he should have had. So it's really hard to calculate exactly the financial impact this had, but there's definitely people who would have been better off financially had they never come out to build this facility at all. Um, plus just a lot of people who, you know, you're, you're incentivizing them to have to go find other work while they're supposed to be quarantining because you're not making it financially feasible for people to safely and financially safely stay at home. I'm just wondering, what's the logic behind this provision in the law, which allows larger companies to avoid paying sick leave? If they have more than 500 employees, presumably they've got some money. I totally agree with you. I mean, I think the financial incentives behind this whole story are really interesting and not something we talk about much in Operation Warp Speed, which Catalent was, you know, contracting with uh, the, the vaccine producers uh, for these jobs, right? And then they hire out Ermco. The incentive here is essentially to build as quickly as possible and at a massive, unprecedented scale, which is good, and that's what we want. But it also incentivizes corners to be cut, obviously. So aside from the health and safety issues on this job, I heard from a lot of workers saying, you know, they would just be rushing things. Uh, they would be not have the materials they need because of shortages in the supply chain. They would pick up a job and drop it and be told to work, you know, a 12-hour shift, to, told to work, uh, you know, things that they weren't expecting when they came onto it. In general, it's because people want to get this you know, vaccine out there, which is great, but it also means that there's financial incentives for Catalent and Ermco to go as big and as quickly 
as possible. And Catalan, you know, is very interesting. Their stock price has doubled since the pandemic started. They've been finishing projects a year ahead of schedule. They're, they have expanded their capacity way beyond what it was before the pandemic. And you can read interviews with, you know, their CEO who says this has been a total boom time for, for our pharmaceutical finishing company. Um, it's just deeply ironic that it's been such a bad experience for so many of the workers. In terms of cutting corners, you know, I'm not sure to what degree the recent news out of Baltimore with the vaccine production facility there that contaminated 15 million doses of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. I'm not sure how much that was about cutting corners, but you write about some alarming corner cutting uh, potentially here and kind of literally where workers would walk through an area that was supposed to be contaminant free as I understand it, just to go on their lunch break. Yeah, I will say the workers really stressed that they they did not think there would be any contamination fears from this facility. So, you know, I would take a vaccine from this facility. But it was true that, you know, there was workers who were told you can never walk through this area of the job site just as a rule. Meanwhile, when they're coming in this backdoor entry, it's opening into one of these restricted areas. So it's kind of like health and safety um, restrictions or protocol exist in one kind of siloed corner of the company's brain, whereas efficiency, getting it done, you know, cutting corners, as you say, is just like, you know, just the sense is that's just uh, comes with the territory. And we should just expect that we're going to be told in the name of production or efficiency or getting the job done that we're going to have to bend the, the safety rules. You follow labor issues closely. I mean, to your knowledge, how common are these working conditions in other factories producing vaccines or pharma in general, both in and outside of the U.S.? It's a good question. I haven't seen anything about another facility that has this kind of direct situation where workers are being exposed to the virus in in the the process of producing the facilities. Part of that is uh, our OSHA capabilities in this country, you know, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration has just been incredibly gutted, especially over the past year. So the past year, obviously, for OSHA, for, for workplace safety, should have been a banner year, right? You have all these workers who are in unsafe conditions and facing crisis. Meanwhile, OSHA investigations were down something like 40% year over year. So you have all of these violations and these hazardous conditions not being enforced. The role OSHA played in this story in particular was really interesting to me because essentially Chris Shanafelt filed an OSHA complaint that they treated as a whistleblower complaint in December saying, this job site's not safe. They're not following their own rules, let alone CDC guidelines. And what happened with his complaint was it was sent over to Ermco, the contractor, without reference to what job site it was. So Ermco is obviously, you know, they're an electrical contractor. They're working a bunch of construction sites at once. OSHA tells Ermco, one of your workers somewhere has said something unsafe is happening. Can you tell us more about that? And I saw Ermco's response was like, well, you know, until you tell us what work site it is, all we can do is kind of provide our 
protocols. So they send back to OSHA, here's our, our manual, you know, our worker health and safety manual. And of course, it's a manual. It says all the right things on paper that it should say. And they also say, and here's what work site conditions are like on our job site. And they provided the the, the working conditions, again, written for the uh, uh, Indiana University Hospital, the Frankfurt Hospital, um, which is, of course, not the job site in question. So OSHA gets this report say, with ERMCO saying, here's our rules and regulations. They fit to the letter of the CDC. And two months later, which is months after Chris is already off the job and back home, um, OSHA reaches out to Chris and says, case closed. They provided their protocols. That's good enough for us. And unless in the next 10 days you're going to appeal it, uh, you know, the case is, is shut. So when you're trying to think about is there health and safety violations going on elsewhere, if this is the process for reporting them, there's really no way to know unless people like Chris or other workers go to the press and say, here's what we're facing. If OSHA's not tracking it, certainly the employers are not going to self-report. Um, so it really falls on to the workers who are themselves being exposed and forced to quarantine to let people know what's happening. OSHA and Indiana's state OSHA, Indiana Occupational Safety and Health Administration, it was gut. You're saying it was gutted. We know that the Trump administration gutted a lot of regulatory agencies. Was it gutted before Trump? You know, is its lack of teeth directly resulting from the Trump administration's gutting of the agency? It's a good question. So state OSHAs have some autonomy for how they operate. When I say that, uh, you know, investigations were down by a serious percentage in 2020, despite the uptick in crisis, um, that's on a national level. So it would be, we'd have to look into it to see how Indiana has handled it in particular. I will say the most kind of jarring thing has been that OSHA never released a uh, an emergency rule around COVID. So you would think at the beginning of a pandemic, this the Occupational Safety Administration would say, here's what's safe in the pandemic at work, and here's what an, an employer is responsible for, and here's what they're not responsible for, or here's what's you know not safe. Um, we never got any binding rule, any they call it an emergency rule from OSHA. Uh, some unions had been pushing for that since day one, especially nurses unions. And in some states, Virginia is actually the only state that has enacted a permanent uh, pandemic-related OSHA rule. Some states have had a temporary rule, but for the most part, the national OSHA has not issued guidelines. And the point of issuing guidelines in an OSHA context is it creates the baseline for what can be enforced. So if OSHA says, you know, I mean, OSHA has rules about how many people can be on a ladder at one time. And if that's a violation, then the employer is fined and disincentivized from cutting corners that endanger workers. If you just stay silent on the pandemic from a national level, from OSHA, then what are workers supposed to do? You know, they can file an OSHA complaint, but if it's not violating any technical rule, even if people are getting sick and quarantining and being harmed by something, and something that we know is harming. I mean, it's not a question that there's, you know, indoor aerosol spread from this virus. Um, there's not much recourse for workers or even for, you know, people working in OSHA or the Department of Labor that want to enforce this until there's a guideline from the national OSHA uh, or the state OSHA, 
you know, there's, there's not much you can do. Another part of the seeming lack of accountability, um, I'm wondering if it has to do with Indiana's 2012 passing of the so-called right-to-work legislation, which basically severely weakens unions and worker protections. Uh, you mentioned in the piece that the unions that represented the workers you spoke with didn't really help them, as I understand it, pursue um, sick leave payments. Uh, were those unions hamstrung by these anti-labor laws? Yeah, I don't think it's directly connected in in that sort of one-to-one way. But the fact is that right to work and other anti-union laws have a lot of downstream effects where unions are less powerful and less able to uh, act in the moment of crisis. So on this job in particular, you know, I think these unions were really in a hard place with with this with the relief act being writing out large employers but it's also the case that there was massive health and safety violations on this job and it's not like there was you know a health and safety walkout one thing that's really interesting is uh, there was a story from about a year ago in italy where workers at a vaccine production facility um, struck or walked out whatever you want to call it over safety concerns there. This was early on. Um, And part of it is that there's a much stronger union culture there and a much stronger union movement there. Um, So I I don't think you can say, you know, it's because the unions are weak in Indiana or anything like that. But I do think it's true that in, uh, you know, in a context with stronger unions, there's, we've seen more resistance to unsafe reopening and more um, productive responses to redress the ways workers are being harmed in this pandemic. How does this Catalan facility fit into the context of the U.S. effort to develop and produce vaccines with Operation Warp Speed and everything else? Right. So Catalan is what they call a CDMO. It's essentially, this used to be a vertically integrated industry where the vaccine producer would do all the things to then package the vaccine and ship the vaccine, distribute the vaccine. The industry over the past 20 years alone has kind of broken up into component parts where there's now this uh, this group of companies that Catalan is a part of that essentially specialize in finishing and packaging medications and vaccines and oral medicines and all things like that. So they exist uh, downstream from Moderna and Pfizer and J&J. They don't make the vaccine, they don't, you know, design the vaccine or produce the vaccine, but they turn the vaccine into a usable product. So they're the ones that put it into a vial, close up the vial, make sure it's all safely packaged, and then put it out for distribution. So they weren't contracted with the federal government the way that Moderna or Pfizer were, but they were contracted with those companies. And they had a close relationship to Operation Warp Speed. So you can go online and see in December, Mike Pence visited the Catalan facility with you know CDC officials and HHS officials, essentially saying, this is part of Operation Warp Speed. Look at the great work being done here. And Mike Pence in that, you know, there's a 45-minute roundtable, and he said, we have not compromised any measure of safety in Operation Warp Speed. Meanwhile, you have construction workers who are in the audience or at the work site, you know, ne- next door who are hearing this and 
and, you know, are either on quarantine right then or know that their coworkers are getting sick. So, you know, it's not as if this was Operation Warp Speed funded directly, but all the money that went to the vaccine companies then flows into groups like Catalent and the contractors they hire, like Ermco. So it really does seem, you know, another version of this would be the federal government said, we're going to do Operation Warp Speed, but you have to have these safety regulations on any projects underneath it, which is not uncommon, right? The federal government often puts conditions on contracts that they put out with private industry saying it has to have you know, a prevailing wage, it has to have certain conditions, can't violate certain practices. Um, the fact that they didn't do that was a testament to them wanting to get it done. And, you know, if some workers get the virus in the process, they are essentially okay with that. Is there any other takeaway that you have after reporting on this and researching it? Yeah, I think people need to understand that our system for uh ensuring that working people are safe and well compensated and have what they need on and off the job is really broken. So whether it was Operation Warp Speed itself, whether it was Catalent, Ermco, OSHA, the Department of Labor of Indiana, all of these structures really did not help uh, these workers that I spoke to. And unless workers are willing to speak up and share their story and organize in whatever way they need to, to put the word out and get what they need to be safe, uh, I don't think we're going to see a change. So my main takeaway was, wow, there must be millions of others uh, like Chris and the other workers I talked to who are exposed at their job, who are in an unsafe situation, who have blown the whistle and either been ignored or disciplined. And we all need to find a way to get those stories out there and find uh, ways to take action for worker health and safety. It's also an emergency. Uh, you know, people are still dying from this virus. People are treated to unsafe working conditions every day before the pandemic and will be after the pandemic. And we can try to strengthen OSHA. We can try to strengthen our unions. Um, but more than anything, we need to be organizing and talking about these issues as much as possible. Jonah Furman authored the piece, Catching COVID-19 at a COVID-19 Vaccine Production Facility. It was published in The Intercept last week. Jonah, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us on WFHB. Thank you. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Our feature was produced by Aaron Comforti. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Kate Young. For WFHB, I'm Noelle Herhusky-Schneider.
and I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters WFHB wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for Hearabouts, Asian American Midwest Radio. Coming up next on WFHB Community Radio. WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 